Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files. With your host, David Axelrod. David French is a conservative columnist for the liberal New York Times, which may sound like an unconventional role, but not so much for a man whose life has taken some unconventional turns. A small-town kid from the South who grew up in a fundamentalist church and attended a Christian college, French wound up at Harvard Law at a time when there weren't a whole lot of religious conservatives there. He spent years advancing religious rights and freedom of speech cases through the courts, interrupting his career to enlist in the army during the Iraq War. He left the law entirely in 2015 to write for the Conservative National Review. But when Donald Trump bulled his way into Republican politics, it was for French a bridge too far. I sat down with him last week at the Institute of Politics to talk about his journey and the state of our union. David French, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. It's an honor. Thanks for coming to the Institute of Politics, University of Chicago. It's so great to have you here. We're going to talk a little later about the great pageant of democracy. <laughs> but first, we've got to talk about you, because I think uh, your journey is is, is interesting. <laughs> L- let's start with your folks. And, yeah. Uh, Dad was a mathematician. Yes, yeah. My dad is a math, a long time, he's now retired, math professor. He's brilliant. He got his PhD in Auburn in 10 months. Huh. And so he's just brilliant, lights out brilliant. And he taught for years and years and years at a small Baptist college in Georgetown, Kentucky, which is where I was mostly raised. Yeah. And your mom? My mom's a teacher also. I came from super educated family. I think the average of graduate degrees between the two parents is 2.0 graduate degrees. So my mom, she was an elementary school teacher. My dad was a college professor. Um, And was that, I know, I think I read your grandparents were involved with education as well. Yeah. My my grandfather was a, a middle school principal on one side, and my grandmother on that same side was a middle school teacher. My um my grandmother on my dad's side was a high school history teacher, and my grandfather, who sadly I never got to meet because he died before I was born, was the superintendent of the schools for a while. Wow. And and always in the South? Yes. Uh, so my dad's side of the family is from northern Mississippi near Memphis, and my mom's side of the family is from middle Tennessee near Nashville. And where from originally? I mean, were they— Oh, man. Uh, You know, our family goes way, way back. So my grandmother on my dad's side was a member of the Mayflower Society. And so family came over originally, especially on my dad's side, um, way back and then migrated down south a long, long time ago. My parents now live on a farm that's been in our family since uh, 1840. Wow. Yeah. 
Those are established roots. Very deep roots. <laughs> and you also were deeply rooted in, in faith. That was mm-hmm. a big part of your family. And that was interesting to me because, and this may say something about my cultural awareness or orientation, but um, the the idea of a mathematician, a math professor, mm-hmm. um, sort of in some ways conflicts with my image of faith. And that's not that, yeah. that you know what I mean? It's no, like the hyper-rational sort of mm-hmm. pursuit of math and the, the kind of suspension of that sort of linear. You know, it's interesting. I was never brought up with any concept of a f- conflict between faith and science, which might sound kind of strange to people that, I grew up with a mathematician father who was also an elder in the church. Yeah. And so I had the living example of how a person reconciles faith and politics. And so when I got older, and it wasn't until really I got into law school and I saw kind of how much conflict there was centered around faith and science, that I was kind of aware of how special my upbringing was. One of the concerns I have today is that somehow science has been woven into the cultural wars that we have. And the paradox is that scientific advances are coming so rapidly now, and some of them have the capacity to solve some of our most uh, difficult problems, and yet there's deep, deep suspicion uh, of science. I think the vaccine... I was literally just texting with a colleague about how Uh, There's a political race in my town in Franklin, Tennessee, where my sister-in-law is the campaign manager for the incumbent Republican mayor, and she and my brother-in-law are under fire from the uh, prime from the challenger. Why? Because my brother-in-law works for Pfizer, and Pfizer, of course, developed one of the key vaccines, and that's become a huge part of the campaign in Williamson County in Franklin, Tennessee, where I live. Is this fight? over the vaccine in the Franklin, Tennessee mayoral race. And so, but there's a large number of Republicans who are just mystified by what is going on, but a ferocious and also large number of Republicans who, um, to this day, the vaccine and COVID issues might make them angrier than almost anything else. How did we get here? How did we get here? Uh, what you describe right now, in some ways, spills out everywhere. This, yeah. this, this, this battle over the speakership in the yeah. House, and I mean, there is this civil war within the Republican Party. How did we get here? Yeah, that's boy, that's a big question. I, I like to parse it out in a couple of ways and draw a distinction between earned mistrust and manufactured mistrust. So, it is the case that major American institutions have made mistakes. It, it, we All of them do. They're comprised of human beings, right? So you will be able to look at, say, shifting CDC gui- guidance, for example, and say, well, you could defend it by saying, well, we were learning on the fly, right? Um, but you can look to shifting, say, CDC guidance or this institution that had a scandal and that institution that had a scandal. And you can say the healthy response to that isn't, outright cynicism, but a healthy skepticism, you know, that I'm not going to completely trust 
any given human institution. But then you have this sort of right-wing media enterprise that takes every real flaw and magnifies it and blows it up. And then also just manufactures flaws, <laughs> just manufactures mistrust out of a whole cloth. And a perfect example of that would be the election challenge in 2020, that when you when you dug down into it, it wasn't that there was launched from a kernel of truth. It was like a an orchard of lies launched from an a few seeds of lies. There was never the kernel of truth. And so um, what we are now in the I grips of— I think it was of, launched under a orange thatched dome, I think. <laughs> right. So we're in this position now where there's a lot of gain to be had in manufacturing mistrust. Yeah, I think also—and um, let me just say parenthetically, I, I grieve, and I'm sure this will piss some people off, but I grieve for Dr. Fauci— who will, for the rest of his life, be trailed by security oh. because he has been so demonized. This guy who, um, you know, who's really in his life been instrumental in saving millions of lives, not just the pandemic, but right. going back to PEPFAR. And um, so, um, but there is, at the center of this is, I think, and you correct me because I'm sort of, I'm, trafficking in your world in a way <laughs> but there is this sense of hostility toward experts uh combined with government uh telling people how to do what how they have to right. live compelling people to do things and you know you see it in the climate change debate and you see it in the vaccine debate and you see it now in the schools and how you know this this sort of compulsion to mandate and proscribe curricula and sort of shape the history that people are being right. taught and so on. Um, it's a really disturbing thing. But you're such an interesting guy to talk to about it because you come out of the conservative movement. Yeah. I should have asked you, by the way, were politics part of what you discussed at home? Was that something <laughs> that you... It's funny. My parents were McGovern Democrats. So, really? Yeah. So, so yeah, that my parents were Democrats. I came of age in the Reagan presidency, and I was kind of a Cold War kid. I, the most important issue to me at that time was how do you confront the Soviet Union? And in my young, my young self latched on to the Reagan approach. And so I came of age with Reagan-Bush conservatism, uh, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and so that's my history. And I was very, um, you know, gosh, if one thing that's really humbling to do is if you ever find your old high school yearbook and you open it and you read the comments that your classmates leave. I, I did, a couple of years ago, I found it when we were moving to Franklin and I looked at it and I thought, I must have been the biggest political nerd <laughs> because half the comments are about, oh, I love talking politics with you, you know. So, yeah, I was very uh, conservative, uh, very much a Reagan-Bush conservative. I remained Republican all the way through to 2016. I was a Romney delegate in 2012 to the Republican National yeah, Convention. Yeah, I want to talk about that. But... And um, so for me, what I saw happen in 2016 was extremely grievous. Um, and what it did is it put to you a really it, – it made you ask yourself a big question, which was, why am I a Republican? 
Is it am I a Republican because of certain ideologies and values, or is it I'm a Republican because this is my community and my home and you know my relationships and and at the end of the day, I was a Republican because I believed in conservative ideas and very critically because I also believed in character, especially if you're going to have a movement that advocates for smaller government for less governmental intervention yeah you really need to personal also, responsibility exactly you put a premium on individual character and and i felt that the party you didn't think just, you could march behind trump on that platform no, no that's not that's not gonna work um i want to get to all of that but i don't want to lose the thread of your story because you went to lipscomb university mm-hmm. in nashville yes. small christian college yes uh and from there you went to harvard law school <laughs> yeah And uh, I was really interested in um, sort of what that transition was like in the, in the, uh, I guess it was the early 90s. The early 90s. Yes. Uh, Because that must have been a culture shock. Huge. It was good and terrible at the same time. It was good in the sense that I had a great education, met friends that I retain to this day, really opened my eyes and my horizons to a lot of ideas I'd never heard before. All of that was good. The terrible was that I arrived at a time when the college, when the law school was in the grips of just an enormous wave of intolerance. And so you would have things like if I spoke up and was articulating a pretty normal conservative point of view, you would have hissing and shouting down and booing in class. Not all the time, but enough to really kind of, you know, knock to make you pay a social cost for your views. So interesting, because this is Harvard Law School, where you're supposed to be being trained to contend with different points of view yeah. and and analyze how one evaluates those arguments and responds to them. Yeah. Probably not hissing. No, hissing and booing. You can't do that in the courtroom. Yeah. You know, if your opposing counsel says something you don't like, you can't sort of pound the table or hiss or boo. But yeah, I mean, it, it, you would have, we had cancel culture before people knew what cancel culture was, where people would call conservatives, the judges that conservatives were going to be clerking for and try to bully the judge into revoking the clerkship. Or um, I formed a pro-life, pro-religious liberty group there in 1992, and we knew we were in the minority. <laughs> I mean, we had no illusions. But when the first thing that I sent out was a uh, a letter saying that Harvard Law School had a policy where its um, its student health co- fee covered elective abortions, but if you had a conscientious objection to abortion, you could get a refund of that very small part of your fee that covered that. It was a good policy that Harvard had, and we made our classmates aware of it. And I'll never forget going to my inbox, my literal inbox, not my no email then, um, and it was full of paper. And I remember briefly thinking, oh, I just tapped into the latent pro-life movement at Harvard Law School. That was not it. <laughs> and I remember opening the first sheet of paper, and it was something like, uh, why don't you go die, you effing fascist? And, you know, these are my classmates. Um, so that part was that part was profoundly negative. Um, but a lot of also, uh, also at that time, I met progressive students that I loved, and we formed fast friendships. And so for me, it was this really interesting environment of just sort of seeing the best of the, you know, left folks who are to the left of me and, to the, and the worst of folks who are to the left of me. And so it made a deep impact on me. Yeah. Was the reverse true? Were there, was there among your friends, was there intolerance 
So we were, it was such a small group. I was in the religious conservative side of the conservative movement there. And most of the folks that I was, we were, most of them were not really that political, to be honest. Like between religion and conservatism, religion was way higher in their priority than their politics. And so they were mainly quiet about politics. Um, The secular conservative group was sort of early proto-trolls, many of them. So these more secular guys, many of them, there was a, I can't remember if it's a professor or a student who compared some negative rhetoric to the Holocaust. And so way over the top, right? So a bunch of these sort of right-wing kind of trollish personas, every time something would come up and people were expressing anger at what they said, they would go, oh, is it the Holocaust? You know, they would use that and wield that back in a trolling kind of way. And so it was just nasty and toxic. Um, but my community, uh, the, the the Christian community that I was a part of, we were not a part of that. Um, now, you know, sometimes I'd be on the receiving end of it, and I, but and I and I know that I had a bit more of an attitude than I have now. <laughs> like, you know, I'm 24 years old, thinking I know a lot more than I knew. But we we really didn't reciprocate. You raise the issue of abortion. It's been a big flare point for. For a long, long yeah. time in this country, it's taken on a different form since uh, the Dobbs decision. Mm-hmm. You, you're a thoughtful advocate on this issue. Is it possible to have a respectful dialogue on this issue? You know, because I have no doubt that you have, as a matter of, of faith and conscience, you you, you know, you believe that life begins at conception and should be treated as such. Uh, and, you know, I know plenty of, uh, of women who feel very much like that they should ha- have right. control of decisions over their own body and are equally passionate for sure about yeah. it. Um, but what has sort of seized us is this notion that each point of view based on your perspective is immoral and wrong and therefore hence the mail you got. Yeah. 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 And as we know, there's been a lot the other way as well. Is there a way or is there a way to have a respectful dialogue? Is there a way to encourage that? Absolutely. You know, I, I think you have to begin with sort of a, some shared starting positions. And one of them is the ends don't justify the means. In other words, you can't take this position that just because somebody disagrees with you, even on an issue as important as that, or one where the feelings are so deep-seated, that the fact that you disagree with me means that I'm relieved of all moral obligations as to how to treat you as a human being. I was deeply influenced by Pope John Paul II's Gospel of Life, small book he wrote in the mid-1990s. And one of the presuppositions of it is that every human being possesses incalculable worth every human being. So if that's true, you know who possesses incalculable worth? The human beings who disagree with me, right? So if they possess incalculable worth, how should I treat someone? And so when, but when we abandon that, when we abandon that mindset, when we say that the people who disagree with me on matters of deep importance somehow are less worthy, um, are somehow less valuable, or should be treated as less worthy or less valuable. That's a conversation stopper. But what I try to do is I try to lead with humility. I don't have all the answers, you know, and maintain kindness 
even as we might disagree over what justice requires. You know, I mean, we've seen people killed mm-hmm. over this. So let's talk about Dobbs. Mm-hmm. Um, you concurred, obviously, with the mm-hmm. with the decision. I wanted to ask you about this sort of the situation as it now exists, where you have some states where abortion is is essentially banned, mm-hmm. other states where abortion rights are available. Sometimes women who live in the states where it's banned are now then in a position to have to travel long mm-hmm. distances to get the medical attention that they need and to have an abortion. Is that a, a viable state, not a state in the union, but a state for the country to be in, in which we have sort of different categories of rights depending on where you live in the country? I think it is in many ways more viable than the Roe formulation. The Roe Roe was a very deeply destabilizing decision. Now, if you liked it, you know, you might have less you might be less keenly aware of its destabilizing effects. But for a very long time, what's happened is you took this incredibly intensely difficult moral issue that is not resolved in the text of the Constitution, and you removed it from the democratic process. And so the returning it to the democratic process, to me, was the constitutionally sound thing to do. The problem was that, again, this is coming from a pro-life perspective, pro-life movement was not ready for that. It was not ready for that. Um, that that bear hug of Donald Trump in many ways was utterly catastrophic for the moral witness of the pro-life movement. Because remember what I said earlier about ends justifying means. That cannot be. That cannot be part of the pro-life movement. And so if you say, well, for this cause, what we're going to do is we're going to embrace cruelty or even be cruel. We're going to embrace dishonesty or be dishonest, uh, embrace conspiracies, et cetera, et cetera, all for some greater good. I'm sorry, but unless you're just drinking your own Kool-Aid, like mainlining your own Kool-Aid, that is not convincing to anybody. And one of the things that the returning this to the pro to the democratic process meant is you have to win people over. You have to. Or you lose. And, well, and that's what the pro-life movement's been experiencing ever since. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. First of all, all all my years in politics, this was an issue that animated the right more than the left. And that's flipped. And it's flipped. Mm -hmm. And it actually, I think, was very much a part of what happened in 2022 when Republicans underperformed in the congressional races. I suspect it's going to impact on the election in 2024 because there are a whole lot of Americans who, after 50 years, feel like freedoms they had were taken away. Yeah. So where are we in this in this debate? And then you, yeah. you see you see the posturing in your in the Republican Party about it. I mean, look, uh, from a pro-life perspective, the situation is really grim. Here's the basic reality of what happened. If you look, if you go to the end of the Obama administration, there were about, I don't have the exact number right off the top of my head, but it's about 338,000 fewer abortions than at the start of the Obama administration. So this is a pro-choice administration, but there were 338,000 fewer abortions. Okay. So Obama, there was a Decline in abortions under Obama, under Bush, under Clinton, under Bush one, under Reagan. There was an increase under Carter. But after Carter, every presidency, abortions decreased until Donald Trump. Donald Trump abortions went up. There was about 60,000 more abortions at the end of Donald Trump's presidency. So on the one hand, the pro-life movement said Donald Trump's the most pro-life president in America. He nominated the justices that overturned Roe. On the other hand, if your real concern is ending abortion, not necessarily banning abortion, Donald Trump was a catastrophe for the movement. It was a, under his presidency, it was a change of a And 40- why do you think that was? That is a complicated, now I don't put all of that on, you know, complex social phenomenon rarely have a single unitary cause. But here's one thing that I will note about the Trump term. Multiple major indicators of what I would, you might call sort of the hope index turned negative. So the marriage rate had been going down for a long time. It stabilized during the Obama presidency and then plunged under Trump. Marriage is a tangible kind of marker of hope. You know, here's another human being I want to build a life with, right? Um, Murder rates just skyrocketed by the end of Trump's first term. Um, If you look at deaths of despair, they had been going up for a while, but at the very end of his term, they really shot up again. And so all kinds of factors that indicate that are sort of, do I have hope for the future or do I not? Really turned negative under Trump. And now, can I lay all of that at him? No, but does name like I can't think of one thing that he would have done as president that really would have created in a citizen of this country a sense of the best days are ahead. <laughs> let, let me ask you about Trump and the and the uh, evangelical community. I, I think about this often these days because I'm monitoring this election, mm-hmm. 
And Trump is is doing very well with evangelical oh, yeah. voters. Uh, I'm watching Iowa. Here's Mike Pence, and I, who is evangelical and very devout, and was actually recruited by Donald Trump in 2016 yeah. as his ambassador to the evangelical community. He vouched for him mm-hmm. with the evangelical uh, community, and he is in the low single digits with evangelical voters who view him as, I guess, having betrayed Trump. Yeah. So what does that all mean? How do you, how is one to interpret that? Yeah. Because Donald Trump, there's nothing about the way he's lived his life that would be consonant with the principles that certainly you would espouse. Yeah. You know, it's a great question. I know we have a mutual friend in Russell Moore. Yes. And we have talked about this and talked about this. And I think there's several things going on at once. Um, One of them is, it might be surprising to know this, considering how dedicated to politics so many Christians are, especially white evangelicals. But there was, if you grew up in the evangelical church, there was almost no moral formation around politics. And and what I said, note what I said about moral formation. There was a lot of issue formation, like Christians, what Christians are be, should be for is this or against this. So it was all issues. But there was no real education into how to live as a Christian in the political space. And so a lot of that, Micah 6, 8, act justly, love kindness, walk humbly. Those last two are the how with humility, with kindness. Well, a lot, of, a lot of Christians basically said was, no, it just stops at justice, and you're going to get my justice good and hard. And they abandoned these concepts of kindness or humility or the fruit of the Spirit. Well, those last two would be as antithetical to Donald Trump totally. as, as any words you can choose in the English language. Totally. And, so, and then the other thing is there's this sense of existential threat. Yes. And so if you combine a sense of existential threat with no formation in politics centering around humility or kindness, then what what do you get? You get, as I just said earlier, you start to get the logic of religious war, which is that's what you well, saw on uh, you know January sixth in some ways. Yes. No, there is a state of besiege a, a, a psychology of besiegement mm-hmm. uh and that has come with Rapid, de- rapid demographic and cultural change, you know, population shifts to cities. Uh, there are a whole range of elements here. And, of course, social media, which um, the business model uh, rests on uh, fanning the flames of alienation, besiegement, uh, the sense that you are in your silo and everybody outside is your enemy, not not just someone you disagree with. Um, and these, of course, are all things that Trump has, has Exacerbated. Uh, weaponized yeah. for his own benefit. Let's just follow the thread of your yeah. journey, because you spent much of the uh, next many years in the law on relig- w- w- religious freedom issues. Free speech, yeah. One of the issues that I know has been brooded about was the issue of uh, gay rights. Mm-hmm. And you signed something called the Nashville Statement in mm-hmm. 2017. Explain to me what that was. And I know that you've sort of amended your own thinking on it. Yeah, so the Nashville Statement was a theological statement 
okay, so it was, this is what is the traditional teaching of the church on human sexuality. Um, so it was not a statement of this is what the law should be, right? This is more, much more like if you're talking about what are the, what's the statement of faith or the belief system of a particular denomination or set of denominations. And so that was a traditional classical statement of Christian sexual morality, very much in line with traditional Catholic thinking, with traditional Protestant thinking. Um, so that is, that is a, a statement of Christian belief, what then is the big contention in, within the Christian community and the big fight is that what do you, how much of that statement of Christian belief should then be reflected in civil law? Okay, so that, that is where you're going to have a lot of agreement amongst evangelicals, Catholics, etc., not, not everybody, of course, about um, traditional Christian sexual morality. And then you're going to end up with a lot of disagreement um, about how should the law reflect that and or if it should at all okay and so that's where things start to get really um contentious within the christian world is less over what is the traditional statement of christian belief on sexual morality that sex is reserved for a marriage between a man and a woman versus okay what should the civil law be and this is where you start to see the big fight between the Christian nationalist world and the more libertarian world, which that's I'm in the much more libertarian camp than the Christian nationalist camp. And that's where you get the fight between those who want to uphold American pluralism and those who sort of want to eradicate or dominate their uh, opponents. And so I'm a believer in a very healthy, thick pluralism where many different kinds of American communities can live true to their values um, and will protect each other's liberty. So, a, a Christian community should protect the religious liberty of a Muslim community, or should protect the free speech rights of atheists, for example, because that's what it means to live together in this pluralistic society. But the sort of the Christian nationalist brand says, well, no, religious liberty is really only for Christians, um, that America should be more explicitly or be explicitly labeled as a oh, Christian you nation. Hear, you hear people in politics expressing that yeah. point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that I've always found hard to to compute is how one, on the one hand, expresses discomfort about the uh, o- government overreach into mm-hmm. our lives and then says, but I'm not going to let my neighbor get married to someone they love because I don't believe in same-sex marriage. I, I, I never understood that. And you, in, in, I guess in 2022, you clarified, was it, was it, so, was it a change of position or so was I've, it a... I've called it a, it's a flip-flop flip, okay? So in 2004... You could be in the Olympics. I know, if the flip-flop flipping was an event. Yes. So in 2004, like early on, was it 03? I, I can't remember, 03 or 04, 04 after, right after the... Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court uh, legalized same-sex marriage in Massachusetts. Uh, I said, fine. You know, look, if two people want to get married um, and two people of the same sex want to get married, fine. It's not impacting me. um, No problem. And then I began to see in my work on religious liberty and free speech that a growing movement that was essentially saying, wait, if same-sex marriage is going to be legal— then all of the institutions of American life, including religious institutions, 
need to be on board with this or we're going to start to diminish their liberty. And then I was very troubled by that because the argument that had been made, Andrew Sullivan brilliantly made it, John Roush, my friend John Roush had brilliantly made it, was that, wait, the fact that I can marry the person that I love is not, how does that hurt you, right? right? But if the legal regime says the fact that I can marry the person I love means that the church that you belong to, the school that you belong to, has to conform to our viewpoint or will face state punishment, then that's not the deal. That's not the bargain, right? And so uh, I was, I had said, look, if the, if the, if the bargain is that you're going to diminish religious liberty, if you're going to take these religious institutions and override their rights of rights of conscience, uh, no, I'm not. For, I'm. I don't. Cons- I don't agree with that. And then in 2015 in Obergefell, Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, who was keenly aware of all of this because he was had long been one of the more solid justices on free speech issues. Mm-hmm. Also, probably the leading justice in many ways on LGBT Without rights. Question. Yeah. So he writes in Obergefell this really interesting thing. He says, he has this whole aside that he says, people of goodwill coming from religious traditions have different views, and we should respect those views. And I remember thinking, huh, interesting. We'll see if that works out. And it has. So Supreme Court authority ever since Obergefell has been very protective of free speech and religious liberty. So it is, in fact, the case that you can have same-sex marriage and free speech and religious liberty side by side, which was what I thought was possible in 2004, for example. And so then in 2022, after Dobbs' decision, and there was a lot of concern that Obergefell might be overturned, when the coalition of Democratic and Republican senators said, hey, let's pass this Respect for Marriage Act that that makes this bargain concrete. And to me, that was what pluralism is. It's people with different worldviews creating a space in which they can live consistent with their values. Another part of that Nashville statement had to do with transgenderism. Mm-hmm. And uh, that has become a focal point. It, the country has, I think, made a huge leap on this issue of same-sex marriage, and and you don't see it invoked in the way that it was even ten right. years ago. Right, right, right. But now there is a big focus on the transgender issue, and I, I wonder before you know you talked about Micah mm-hmm. and uh, about kindness and humility. Do you feel that? transgender people are being treated in our politics today with kindness and humility? Oh, goodness, no. I mean, some of the stuff that I see coming out of the right is unbelievably, some of the rhetoric that I see is just unbelievably appalling. And then I've started to see things where, you know, and sort of the paradigmatic part of this is where people are saying, I want to deny basic civil liberties. Um, now, this is imperfect because I know that you, I'll bring up a concept that's been really contentious. Drag Queen Story Hour, for example, has been very contentious around the country. A lot of states have moved to ban it, for example. Um, and I know not everybody who's a drag – it's not exactly one-to-one to say mm-hmm. somebody's a drag queen is trans. Mm-hmm. So bear with me. But when you say I'm going to ban Drag Queen Story Hour, you're banning expression. You're banning expression either because you don't like the nature of the expression or because you don't like who's engaging in it, right? And so I have been 
just embroiled in this unbelievable argument over these drag queen story hours where I've said, wait, this is free speech, right? This is civil. These are basic civil liberties that we're talking about here. And so this kind of goes back to that very thing I was talking about earlier. We in this country can have really different ideas about very weighty moral issues and historic um, religious traditions and teachings and theologies, which I wouldn't have signed to the statement if I didn't agree with this historic Christian teachings, can have a, a perspective on everything from, uh, you know, everything from sex to gender identity, etc. But at the same time, I should defend the civil liberties of people who strongly disagree with me on this point. They have the same free speech rights that I have. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. I want to get back to uh, a a couple of things about your really interesting journey, because you decided sort of in the middle of your life that you were going to enlist Mm -hmm. as a JAG. Yeah. And uh, uh, you went to Iraq at a particularly brutal time in the history of that war. Why did you make that decision? And how did that change you, that experience? Yeah, so many ways. So I made the decision... I'm sure you remember in the run-up to the Iraq War, there was this argument that people made online calling supporters of the Iraq War who weren't willing to enlist. They called them chicken hawks. I do remember that. <laughs> and I have to be honest, that that kind of stung, right? And I remember in 05, uh, I was reading a story about how the you, the military, the Army in particular, was taking pretty high casualties and was having difficulty recruiting. And... I just felt this incredible sense of deep moral conviction that I couldn't keep supporting a war that I wasn't willing to deploy to myself. And, you know, my dad, my math PhD dad, taught me that you walk your talk like you live your values. And so um, I was 36 at the time. They had just raised the maximum age to 35, but I knew I could get an age waiver if I could pass the physical. So, I, you know, I told my wife, I said, I think I should do this. And she was initially not a big fan of the idea. We had two kids at the time. I was running uh, a nonprofit civil liberties organization in Philadelphia called Fire. And, um, but she, she said, yeah, do it. And so it's kind of funny. I go to the recruiting office in center city, Philadelphia, walk in, um, just as bald as I am now, much more out of shape than I am now and said, I want to be a JAG officer because who needs a overweight, out of shape infantry officer? So, but I had legal training. I could, I could bring that to the cause. And uh, 
they didn't know what to do with me except put me, send me to Fort Dix for a physical that I almost failed. <laughs> and I was so out of shape, David, that to get ready, when I first started running to get ready for officer basic, I pulled my hamstring in the first quarter <laughs> mile. It was pitiful, but I made it through. I made it through officer basic and I deployed in 07 uh, during the height of the surge with the third armored cavalry regiment. Won a bronze star for your service. Did the exposure that you had there, you talked about how the the exposure of the people you met at Harvard impacted on you. Yeah. Did the exposure of the people you served with in Iraq and the service, uh, did it change you? So much in, in a couple of different ways. So one is, remember, you know, I was pretty partisan Republican um, and I was a conservative movement lawyer. Right. And I remember giving a speech before I left that I, I even hate to bring it up because I'm embarrassed by it. Um, but I think it's an important point. Um, so someone asked me, they said, you're doing all this great work. Um uh, here in the United States, why are you going to Iraq? And I very, like, self-righteously, you know, in this group said... Oh, yeah, I saw this. I said, I think the two great threats to America are jihadists abroad and radical leftists at home, and I feel called to combat both. And, yay, you know, everyone claps in this thing. And then I go, and, by the way, I'm serving next to people who are way to my left. My The guy I was closest to was all in, o, in on Obama before it was cool to be all in on Obama. And I'm sitting there all in on Mitt Romney. And we're you cannot separate us. We're tight as brothers. And so, and then I saw what an actual enemy is. You know, the atrocities of Al-Qaeda. This, the, this was the precursor to ISIS. Mm-hmm. And the, all of the atrocities you saw ISIS committing in 2014, 2015, they were doing in Diyala in 07 and 08. And I felt ashamed, to be honest, like by that comment, because there's a huge difference between somebody you disagree with politically, even vigorously, right? Even if it's on big issues like abortion, like we've been talking about, and that. And then the other thing I thought was every single one of us, when you put on the uniform of your country— You're saying you're willing, not wanting, but you're willing to die for your country, which includes millions of people you disagree with. So if I was willing to, you know, if I was willing to put on a uniform and serve them, how could I come home and hate them, right? And so it really changed me. And so I came home to a country that as I was depolarizing, was polarizing. So I felt like my in my mind and heart, I'm zigging one way and the country's zagging in the other way. And it was incredibly powerful and impactful for me. We just saw this big battle over the speakership. Yeah. And a subtext of it was funding for Ukraine. You mentioned you came out of this Reagan tradition. There's no doubt where Ronald Reagan would have been. None. On this question. Are you worried now First of all, you're worried about where the Republican Party is going, because clearly Donald Trump would be on the other side of this issue. You saw Ron DeSantis shift to the other side of this issue. Uh, are you worried that that in this hothouse that somehow the Ukrainians will be abandoned to Putin? I'm very worried. I'm very worried about that. And it would be an abomination <laughs> to abandon them. Um, let me back up a bit. So. 
This has been one of the things that has showed me that the Trump change in the party was not a blip, but could be something really lasting with world historic consequences. So, you know, a lot of things about the era, a lot of things that we'll talk about and we have talked about, they kind of ebb and flow through the, the democratic process and one side is up and another side's down. And a lot of these things aren't finally settled for a while. The war in Ukraine is we're watching a world historic moment Mm -hmm. that if Russia triumphs and a lot of people have sort of said, well, no, he's already failed. Okay. Well, he failed in his initial plan. Yeah. But if you know anything about Russian military history, you know that the failure of the initial plan is not the end of the story. Yeah. They uh, pride themselves on, taking a lot of pain and waiting people out. Absolutely. And, and and they've been given an impetus to wait for this election. I was when I was in Ukraine, I was in Ukraine in, in Kiev in May, and we were meeting with um, the then defense minister, and he said something very interesting. He said, look, Putin pushes and then waits for an election. He pushes again and he waits for election. And the interesting thing, and I wrote this in the Times uh, a to a couple of weeks ago. The interesting thing is there is a way in which if Putin is able to prevail now, after all of his initial early defeats, it could even be more crushing for the world order because he is now portrayed it as Russia versus NATO, even though it's only Ukrainians fighting, to be clear, but they're fighting with NATO resources, mm-hmm. primarily American yes. resources. And so if he can prevail now, he will project to the world, to his people, and a a degree of resolve and strength that we will have quailed and backed down in front of. And here's the important thing, for no good reason, David, for no good reason at all. I just want to cover a couple of other things. You gave up the law Mm -hmm. to become a writer. Mm -hmm. You wrote for the National Review, Mm -hmm. ultimately for the Dispatch, Mm -hmm. uh, helped create the Dispatch with... uh, Jonah Goldberg and Steve Hayes. Who are friends of ours and have both been very active here at the Institute uh, of Politics. Um, And uh, and you started writing in 2016 in a very, very direct way about your objections to Trump. Mm -hmm. Tell me what that was like for you personally. What kind, uh, and for your family. Yeah, this is horrible (laughs) in one word. And it really started, I I will never forget, it was a, 2015, it was September, I believe, of 2015, and I had watched a Republican debate, and I had seen Trump and then some Trump allies online, specifically Ann Coulter, echoing what I recognize as talking points from this really new and emerging movement called the alt-right. We don't talk about the alt-right as much anymore because, sadly, large parts of the alt-right— The alt-right is now not alt. Yeah, it's not alt. It's become big parts of the right. And so— I said, look, this is echoing these white nationalist racist talking points. It shouldn't have any place in the GOP primary period end of discussion. It's like this very brief little post. And you know how uh, sometimes when you you do something online and it'll have the pop-up, it says, are you sure you want to? There should have been a pop-up that said, are you sure you want to change your life with this post? I would have hit yes anyway, but that warning would have been nice because... Within 30 minutes of that post going up, I think was the first moment I saw a picture of my youngest daughter photoshopped into a gas chamber 
saw pictures of her photoshopped into slave. You adopt fields. a child from mm-hmm. Ethiopia. Yes, saw pictures of her photoshopped into slave fields. Um, my wife was a writer at Pathios, a religious website at the, at the time, and her blog was filled with gruesome images of murdered black Americans. I mean, just gruesome. She started carrying a gun. Yeah, she she um, we we started to have threats. Um, so she she'd grown up around guns, but she hadn't fired a gun in a long time. So she's very responsible. So she said, if I'm going to carry a gun, I'm going to go get trained. And so she went and took a series of classes uh, in, in self-defense, started carrying a gun wherever she went. And it was very bad. And it never fully stopped. Uh, so we had, I'm sure going to work at the New York Times hasn't oh, helped. Pe- people love that. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Times is very, very supportive. They have, you know, incredible security professionals who help you. But it never really stopped. And and here's the thing, David. There are two aspects of that that were were grievous. One is the obvious horror of the con- – and not they're not continual, but episodic threatening moments. And some of them would get – got very, very scary. So that's horrible. But then the other thing that was so horrible is I would tell this story uh, to my Republican friends, and if they were my close friends, they were stricken for us. They were, what can we do to help? Is there anything that we can do? But one step removed, and the main thing they were worried about was whether this would turn me against Trump. And, And that's when I really began to see how deep this rot was, that when you're presented with the darkest side of a dark movement— and your response is, well, don't let that deter you from voting for the guy that those people love, the alt-right loves. And that was shocking to me. That was shocking to me. And and to see it come from people in my own church who I'd known for years, and some of the behavior, in addition to the threatening behavior, there was just pettiness. So... For example, I would come into my kids' basketball game where they attended a small Christian school in rural Tennessee, and there would be a couple of families who would just turn their backs to us. Hmm. And in that circumstance, it wasn't over Trump. It was over Roy Moore, because I opposed Roy Moore, the Republican senator. Morally challenged candidate. To, for, to say the least. Yes. And they would, turn, they would turn their backs. That's not a big deal. It's just, but it signifies. How did your kids process that? With remarkable resilience and courage and not a little anger. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you've seen, when you're an older sibling and you've seen people treat your youngest sister like that, makes you angry. When, um, when you go to college, say, and you see sort of the f- frat bro culture around MAGAism, it makes you angry. Um, and so, no, they're, they're, um, courageous, they're resilient, but they're more than a little ticked off also. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you know where we are now. Mm-hmm. Do you believe Donald Trump will be the nominee of the Republican Party? Yes. I mean, I have no, there's no rational reason for him to be the leader, the nominee, but I, I, there's, I don't see any basis. I don't see any way that he loses as of right now. You spoke earlier about the danger of kind of just the ends justifying the means Mm -hmm. you've seen his rhetoric lately about general milley yeah would be executed uh you know for the crimes that trump 
Conjures. Yeah. Uh, the the NBC tried for treason. Mm-hmm. Uh, his language has become more and more inflammatory yeah. and violent. Where are we headed with this, uh, whether he wins or whether he loses? I have never in my life been more alarmed about the future of this country um, and about the possibility of widespread political violence. Because, David, it is, and I, I want your listeners to understand this, it's worse than you think. So if your focus is on Trump only and not the way his ethos has metastasized throughout right-wing America, you're not, you're not getting the picture. So at the same time that all of this is happening nationally with Trump threatening to execute Milley, to investigate news networks, to, you know, defying judicial, or you just go down the line of the outrageous thing that he's doing, and then the indictments stand testimonious to the outrageous things that he's done. But- and, and presumably, if he's convicted, he will up the I think that's the thing that's oh. pr- promoting his behavior, his, yeah. his erratic behavior. Now, if he, if he, he, he certainly, his whole project relies on delegitimating and imputing evil to all of these institutions. It seems like an open invitation of violence. It really is. I mean, just in, so Franklin, Tennessee, where I live, um, if you ever come and visit it, you would think, wow, this is kind of a storybook community, beautiful downtown, beautiful homes, beautiful countryside. The mayoral race right now is between an establishment Republican and a woman who uh, outright neo-Nazis came to the last candidate forum to, quote, provide security for her. Now, she says she didn't invite them and all of this, but she actually was the listing agent when some of them were selling a store that they owned. And you've got actual actual Nazis who are clustering outside of candidate forums in this small, not that small, but small city in the South. And that's just one place. You know, Mm -hmm. as we're we're recording this, there was a guy who showed up in the Wisconsin State House with a gun. Got arrested and then came back with a bigger gun. With a bigger gun. Came back with an AK-47, according to CNN. And so this is all in the water. Looking for the governor. Looking for the governor. And this is all in the water. And it's not just about Trump anymore. So, you know, the the last really scary moment that we had as a family was related to when I opposed the anti-CRT bill in Tennessee. So um, I'm not a critical race theorist, but I'm a believer in the First Amendment. And I'm a believer that children should be educated in all different kinds of ideas and theories. And that a number of state legislatures passed these bills to prohibit certain kinds of teachings on race. And the bills were so poorly written, they might as well have been drafted in crayon. And I was like, wait, we need to, these, these bills are way over the top in prohibiting people from speaking and they're poorly written. They're vague, they're oppressive. And that, when I wrote about that, the response and the backlash was unbelievable. And Donald Trump wasn't a part of that. Yeah, it's just leaking out all over. Let's end with on that point, because we're here. You're here for Mm -hmm. uh, uh, not just for the Institute of Politics, but to speak at a new institute on freedom of expression here Mm -hmm. at the University of Chicago. And you've spoken and and I've been very involved in this issue because of what we do here. We Mm -hmm. have civil discourse between people who disagree. Sometimes that creates controversy. But you talked about what you thought the obligation 
of education mm-hmm. was. Uh, and I'd like you to, to end on that yeah. because uh, I'll, I'll just tell you this quick story as a lead into it. Uh, we had Corey Lewandowski here in 2016, right after the election. Mm-hmm. And Bob uh, Costa, now with CBS, mm-hmm. uh, was a fellow and he had him. And there was huge protests outside. There were some protests inside. Uh, those When those cleared, there was a very, very bracing discussion between mm-hmm. students there and Corey Lewandowski. And they asked tough, probing sure. questions. And it was really a, a good session. A week later, Van Jones was here, my colleague at CNN, and a student asked, would you think it was appropriate to have Corey Lewandowski? And he said, my... I think our obligation here is to keep you safe from physical harm. It's not to keep you safe from ideas you find objectionable. He said, I want you to be strong, not safe in your thinking. And and this is the Mm -hmm. gym. This is where you get strong. And you said a similar thing about this. And and just I want you to lean into that. Yeah. You know, there's in all of these and all of this fight over education, there's this really interesting Supreme Court case that nobody knew about and forgot. They'd all forgotten about it. Everyone had forgotten about it because they thought it was an artifact of a previous time. It's about a school book banning dispute in a school library in the early 1970s. And it was kind of a case forgotten history because we thought that that wave of that kind of thing was over. Well, no, it's not. And so I reacquainted myself with it. And there's this really fascinating line in there about what is the purpose of education. And it was one of the purposes, in addition to, you know, reading and writing and arithmetic and all of that, is to prepare students to live in a pluralistic, often contentious society to prepare us to live in a pluralistic, often contentious society. To me, that's the that's one of the jobs of every layer, of every level, and it just gets more important the further you go. So you're not really preparing kindergartners for pluralism that much, but 10th graders, mm-hmm. they need to understand, and certainly college students. And I'm also, I really like the John Stuart Mill defense of free speech. And Mill says it like this. He says, well... If I'm wrong and you're right and you convince me that I'm wrong and I agree, then free speech has benefited me immensely. It's taken me from error into truth. But what if you and I have a conversation and I still believe I'm right and you're wrong at the end of it? Was that of no value? No, it's of tremendous value because, one, I'm going to know you and understand you better. And number two, I'm going to be able to understand my own beliefs better and sharpen them. And so if you live in a world in which you are protecting yourself from the viewpoints that you disagree with, you're kind of doing two negative things at once. You're presuming you know all truth when we all don't. <laughs> we, we don't. So you're hiding yourself away from actually learning things that will be valuable to you. But even if you're right, you're often diminishing your ability to engage, to persuade, Um, You're even diminishing the sharpness with which you hold your own beliefs. And again, when you live in this pluralistic society, we have forgotten the art of persuasion. We just move towards right towards mobilization. There's more of me than there are of you. And especially if you have a minority viewpoint. Yeah. Well, let me test this just for a second, because I know that what what students would say is, that's fine, but if someone is... Uh, engaged in hateful incendiary speech, exhortations to violence and all of that, then that should not be 
I mean, where's the line, I guess, is the yeah. question. No, the, the, the law draws some pretty good lines, I think. So the problem you see is when somebody says, I don't just want to be protected from harassment, or which is legally you are. I want to be protected from defamation, which legally you are. And there are other categories. But when you say, I want to pr- be protected from your idea, that is where you implicate core First Amendment interests. And the First Amendment case law is pretty darn clear. There's no such thing as hate speech under the Constitution. In other words, you're not protected from any idea, but you are protected from these other ways in which people use might use speech or the, they might use their voice uh, in ways that are harmful, but they're, you're never protected from an idea. I could talk to you for hours more. I hope we do have hours more conversation. I didn't get to ask you about your illustrious two-week exploratory campaign for president in 2016. Uh, Did that happen? Yeah, apparently so. It's in my notes. Yeah. I kind of remember it. Our buddy Bill Crystal, who was promoting it, told mm-hmm. me about it back then. <laughs> so, uh, But uh, we, have, we have much more to talk about, and I look forward to having you back. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.